These readings from recordings for exhibits at the American Writers Museum, the subject of today's podcast. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure, too, for his civility. We work to eat, to get the strength to work to eat, to get the strength to work. What is the past, after all, but a vast sheet of darkness in which a few moments, pricked apparently at random, shine? I want... I want, I want, was all that she could think about. But just what this real want was, she did not know. I would hurl words into this darkness and wait for an echo. And if an echo sounded, no matter how faintly, I would send other words to tell, to march, to fight, to create... A sense of the hunger for life that gnaws in us all. This is Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America. So the voices we heard in our cold open represent American writers, culled from special recordings made for exhibits at the American Writers Museum in Chicago. We heard the words of Emily Dickinson, John Dos Passos, Carson McCullers, John Updike, and Richard Wright. They represent native-born writers, whether from Amherst, Massachusetts, or Chicago and all part of the permanent exhibits. Today we will visit the museum's temporary exhibit, My America, Immigrant and Refugee Writers Now. The modifier now is important because represented here are contemporary voices, immigrant and refugee writers, sons and daughters of immigrants and refugees, 31 writers represented in all in interactive media, video and audio, live readings and events through May of 2021. There are writers of novels, poetry, nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, all speaking from the point of view of the immigrant and refugee experience. These are first and later generation multinational artists, multilingual, delving into their experiences with community, family, the concept of otherness and duality, and what it means to be American. Visitors interact with video and audio presentations, statements from these artists. They have an opportunity to attend curated readings, but before we go on, let's listen to two fragments from the museum's recordings from two writers speaking about the concept of duality, otherness, and the journeys made by immigrants and refugees. These are two award-winning writers. First, 
Ngozi Ukazu, author of the online graphic novel series Check, Please. Then, Dina Nayeri, author of A Teaspoon of Earth and Sea and The Ungrateful Refugee. Oh my gosh, I think this year was the first year I read about uh, the idea of double consciousness, um, which is being aware of yourself and then also having the massive task of being aware of how others perceive yourself. Um, and what Du Bois put into words was something, and also I read The Bluest Eye, which is literally just about that as well. Um, and what Toni Morrison and Du Bois like kind of put into words is when you are, uh, when, a, when someone comes, when someone leaves a place that is their home, that they are familiar with, that as an environment kind of creates their, their identity and moves into a different zone where they are different and are passively or actively seen as the other, um, a, a, a fission creates where you not only have to consider yourself, but you're considering how others perceive yourself. And, it, and that can be something as simple as being the only black kid in my AP Spanish class or the only one of two black girls who graduated with an IB uh, International Baccalaureate uh, diploma in high school. It's, it's that realization that you are different, that there's, you, you ask yourself, why aren't there others here with me? Um, is this wrong? Is it right? And it, you're forced to process yourself in the lens of others very early. Um, I think in some, there's pros and cons to that because the self-awareness can sometimes um, be internalized as an otherness that is wrong, but it also gives you a sense of maturity. It even gives you a sense of empathy because you are literally forced to put yourself in other people's shoes. Well, I was born in 1979 when the revolution happened in Iran. So that was the year that I was born. And my parents were doctors. They were young. They were newly out of medical school and had set up practices. And they had this, you know, very lovely life in Isfahan. And then the revolution happened. And I was born and my brother was born. And, and um, sometime, you know, in, in 1985, about, when I was about six years old, my mother converted to Christianity. And she did, she did that with, I guess, a lot of passion. I think all of the feelings of, of repression and feelings of not being heard that she had in Iran, she poured into that. And it was like her escape and her rebellion, you know, to choose her own religion, choose her own faith for herself. She was very, very open about it. She proselytized. She um, was basically advertising her apostasy to the Islamic Republic. And very soon the Islamic Republic answered. So she was arrested a few times and she was asked to become a spy against the underground church in Iran which she refused and then they threatened to execute her so um, through a series of um, just incredible good luck coincidences things that my mother calls miracles um, we escaped from Iran just in the nick of time and we went to Dubai we were undocumented immigrants in Dubai we blew through a very short-term visa which we had always planned to do because there was no going back to Iran in safety um, and we stayed there for 10 months until we were recognized as refugees by UNHCR. And we were sent to um, a, a refugee camp outside of Rome in a town called Mentana. And there we lived in the husk of an old kind of dilapidated hotel that had been converted to a refugee camp. And we were there for six months until we were granted asylum to the United States and taken to Oklahoma. These were fragments of interviews from the exhibit 
My America, Immigrant and Refugee Writers Now at the American Writers Museum. During our podcast tour of Chicago in January 2020, we caught up with museum president Carrie Cranston and toured the exhibit. We are with the president of the American Writers Museum in Chicago, Carrie Cranston. First of all, thank you, Mr. Cranston. Can, can I call you Carrie? Yes, you can. Thank you, Carrie, for joining us here today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So tell us, why should the American Writing Museum dedicate what I believe is a 19-month exhibit featuring immigrant and refugee voices in America? Well, because it's an overarching component of the history of American writing that so many voices um, that were part of establishing our writing history um, were immigrants or refugees or the children of immigrants or refugees. And our uh, exhibit spaces um, in the museum celebrate all kinds of writers, but primarily of the past. And so we thought it was important that we explore this particular group of writers because of its importance um, in the more modern voices that currently inhabit that space. There's an opening statement from Ilan Stavans in the written program. It is entitled, We Are Clarion, the Immigrant Manifesto. He uses words like triumph, pride, belonging, the willingness to sacrifice, and that we, immigrants and refugees, trade in reinvention. At the same time, he invokes the feelings that many refugees and immigrant populations feel after they arrive here, isolation, otherness, the urge to resist, the challenges of balancing individualism and collectivism. I don't think I'm getting this wrong when I say it reads with a sense of urgency. Do you and the curators see this as an urgent moment to tell these stories? I think people will definitely see that this falls within the time frame of events happening around the country today. Um, and I think they'll see the connection to both the past and the present. Um, is it urgent? Um, I think it's urgent for people to definitely take the time to think about this topic um, and to really delve into the depth and breadth of the different stories um, that are the immigrant stories. Too often, um, the notion of the immigrant story is one that is a myth of, you know, people in another country who have this longing to come to this great land, and it leaves out the stories of people who came here without choice, of people who came here because they had no other place to go, um, and to people who come here and stay because of family and love, not because they came for this country or its culture. So, so many of the people who come to this country um, come for different reasons, but all of them um, are individuals. And this is a country that was built on the notion of the individual and its importance. So we need to embrace those people. Tell me something about, there's a number of curators. Yeah, we are an institution where we are a, a fun and engaging space that's meant to celebrate writers and their work. Um, and so the initial inception of this museum was one that involved a curatorial team of seven content leaders, you know, who are poets and editors and publishers. Um, and 35 subject matter experts who helped to supply um, information and content um, on all of the different writers who are featured in this museum. So when we do special exhibits like My America, we initially always turn to experts who can help us. Um, and so in this instance, we wanted, again, a team to help 
us work through this process. So we involved, you know, a, a group of people from uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen um, to uh, Vu Tran, um, Leila Hallaby, uh, Deepika Mukherjee, Alain Stevans, Maria Rana, um, all writers in and of themselves, all people who have different immigrant uh, and uh, or refugee experiences, um, and whose work has focused in these topic areas. Um, so all of them brought a different level of expertise and knowledge um, to help us structure the idea of what this exhibit should be. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but do you know how many nations or states are represented by the array of writers? Oh, darn. I should have double-checked the figures before I <laughs> sat down with you. Um, I want to say that um, you know, there are 31 writers in the exhibit. I believe they represent 16 countries, um, and I believe they represent five continents. This took some effort to mount, and I imagine some uh, uh, financial resources— did you use uh, partnerships at the national level? We did, and um, you know, we we had a number of sponsors who were great help to us. Um, we started off with a National Endowment for the Humanities grant as a planning grant, which really allowed us to bring our team together and to really begin exploring the concepts of what we wanted to cover. Um, and then we did find a number of partners, and we actually have partners we're working with today. We really approached this as more than an exhibit, as really an initiative um, for the next 19 months, as you had mentioned. And that initiative includes not only the physical exhibit it downstairs and the and the multimedia pieces, but uh, new curriculum pieces for our, our field trip programming that we do with students around the city and the region. Um, we're uh, rolling out this year an online curriculum component that supports the exhibit. Um, we're also running a program series of immigrant and refugee writers coming in and talking about their works, both to uh, public audiences and a number of them to school groups. Uh, so this for us is is a massive initiative. So partners like the Library of Congress and the National Book Festival, the Brooklyn Book Festival, um, we're working with the Tenement Museum right now in New York. Um, we're planning programming in different parts of the country. Um, so yeah, partners are a big part of what we did here. And tell us again how long this exhibit runs. I know we're about three months into it now. Yeah, so we're about three months in, and it's scheduled to run through May of 2021 right now. So there's plenty of time. There's plenty of time for people to come to Chicago and see this exhibit um, and to look online either at the AmericanWritersMuseum.org or to hop on to our subsite for my-america.org um, and, you know, find out about the exhibit, find out about the programs that are coming up and come and be a part of the initiative. I think we're going to take a tour here. So we're now at the portal of the exhibit gallery. This is the My America exhibit at the American Writers Museum. One of the first things we see is a kiosk where you can share your family's immigration story. And these appear to look like luggage tickets. Can you tell us something about that? 
Yeah, we wanted, with all of our exhibits, one of the things we try and make sure and do is to bring in an element where people get a chance to write, where they're writing in response to the exhibit or writing to share their stories with others. Um, So obviously the luggage tag uh, was something we thought would be a nice um, connection point, you know, as people are traveling and moving and migrating. Um, And we just created these tags with a space for people to write their personal family story, whether that's going back to the Mayflower or whether it's going back to five years ago. Um, We also created a series of stamps um, for people to, you know, put a a stamp like you would on a passport or something like that, um, that talk about some of the different motivating forces that drive people to migrate. You know, what sent your family here? And again, this goes to that notion that it isn't always just opportunity, you know, um, the one that people think of most often. And freedom is another great one. But, you know, there are also people who came here because they were refugees and they needed safety. Um, It wasn't a choice on their part. It's where they were relocated. Um, In certain instances, obviously, there's force. um, There's human trafficking. There's the notion that the entire African-American population in this uh, country was brought here by force. Um, And um, there's also the idea of family. Sometimes people are brought here simply because um, they marry someone who is an American and choose to stay where that person is, but isn't necessarily what drove them to the country. Um, One of the writers in the exhibit, Layla Lame, talks about that. She never had any intent uh, to stay here. She came for her education to finish a PhD and intended to move back to Morocco, but she met her husband. Um, I've actually read a luggage tag just recently from someone here who uh, was talking about the fact that she was more or less what we would call a mail-order bride in 2008. Um, You know, she met her husband online. She flew over to the United States to meet him, made sure he met the criteria of her family, and then they negotiated um, an arrangement. And she stayed, they married, and they had kids. Um, And she was writing that from 2008. So 10 years later, 11 years later, um, she's still here, but that's her story. So not every story is one of opportunity. And what we're getting are literally hundreds at this point and will grow into thousands of different stories that we're scanning, documenting, and saving to share out with the world. So I'm looking at some of these, your story here. And this one is stamped, Immigrant and Refugee Writer Story Other. The writer says, I'm here because the United States was there. My immigration story starts with U.S. colonization and imperialism in the Philippines. A romantic one-dimensional telling of the story paints a picture of my parents moving to this country with the optimism of opportunity and the American dream, in quotes. But they would never had to seek that opportunity elsewhere had U.S. intervention not stifled the local economy in the Philippines. Here's another, and this is stamped with the category family. On my first day in middle school, my first subject was American history. My teacher was talking about a guy named George Washington, in quotes. I turned to my seatmate and said, who's George Washington? My classmate looked at me funny. He pulled out a dollar and said, This guy, he's the first president of the United States. And that's when it dawned on me, I'm in a whole new world. This isn't stamped, but I would say this is the story of family. My parents came from Mexico to the United States so that they could provide me and my sisters a better life, a life that they dreamed they could have themselves. They worked hard every single day to make sure 
that dreams come true. So let's move into the uh, interactive space. Um, so obviously within this space, you know, you're seeing a lot of large touch screens. There's uh, 10 different screens. All of them have 12 different writers um, responding to different questions. Our, our curatorial team helped us frame a number of themes and questions that we wanted to ask each individual writer. We had the 31 different writers. And so um, as you go around the room, uh, it can be questions that are really about writing um, from, you know, why they write, what's their process, and how their background influences that to uh, thematic issues that are very common for people who are writing um, who have had these experiences, um, whether it's the idea of being othered or feeling like they are the other, uh, the notion of duality, you know, I am this to my Japanese-American parents, I am this to my um, friends at school, um, and that notion of duality. Also, the, the concept of what is home and what is a journey, you know, what's the journey your family took, um, you know, how is community and family important to you? What does it mean to be American? So these are, and, and language, you know, how does being bilingual, if you are bilingual, or in some cases trilingual, um, important to you as a writer? So these are all different factors and things that were discussed with these people. And so as you walk through, every one of these is a touch screen. You can tap on an author and you can hear them and see them and they're talking to you and they'll tell you their response to that question. Um, so the other thing is you can dig into these and really um, dig down to a personal story that each one told about an object in their home or something that was important to them um, that connects them to their culture and their history. So that's pretty much what a lot of this content is. Um, there's over four and a half hours of video content in this exhibit. And um, then there is the bookshelf down at the end, which explores um, actual books from each of the writers in this exhibit um, with bookmarks inside them that the writers asked people to say, here's a passage that I want you to read. Um, the room's set up in a way that people can share these screens and be working on them at the same time so that you know, people can talk about it and interact about it. So as an example of some of the things that we can see and hear, so I'm at one of the touch screens and I'm picking Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, who you know, won the Pulitzer for his novel, um, The Sympathizer. And if I want to listen to him, he's going to talk to me about, you know, why did you become a writer? Well, when I was growing up as a refugee in San Jose, uh, my parents were working all the time. So they provided all the material things that I needed, but they didn't have the time to spend with me. And so I dealt with my isolation and my loneliness by retreating to books and to the library. The library was my second home. Books and stories, especially literature and fiction, were my salvation. And so I developed an early love for literature, um, the escapism that it could provide, the entertainment. But then also, also ultimately, I developed a love of the art of literature, too. And I remember as early as the third grade, I wrote my first book, Lester the Cat, for school. And the public library gave me an award for Lester the Cat, which put the first seed in my mind that perhaps this could be fun to do. And so I was attracted to both reading and writing for the entertainment of it, the pleasure that it brought me. And then at a certain point, I began to realize that as much as I loved literature, there was something missing in it. And what was missing in it were stories about people like me and my family, refugees, Vietnamese people, 
Asian Americans. And this realization really started to crystallize in college when I started to take classes in Chicano studies and African American studies and started to read the literatures of Chicanos and African Americans, which were very inspiring to me and made me think, where are the stories of Asian Americans and Vietnamese Americans and Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese people? And of course, some of them did exist, and I embarked an entire career of being a literary critic, dealing with these kinds of stories, uncovering them, supporting the new authors that came out. But I also wanted to be one of those new authors. I wanted to write some of these stories myself. And because not only did writing these stories bring me pleasure, but I also believed then, and still believe deeply now, that stories are also fundamental to how we see ourselves as people, as citizens, as Americans. Even for people who don't think of themselves as professional storytellers, in fact, we're always telling stories to ourselves. And we're living at a time in our country when the fact of storytelling is ever present. We have a president who tells one particular version of the American story with which I deeply disagree, but his version of the American story is persuasive to a large number of Americans. And storytelling becomes one terrain where we fight over what it means to be an American. So thank you, Kerry Cranston, president of the American Writers Museum in Chicago. Well, thank you, and I really enjoyed our time together. I found the exhibits and stories of My America to be fascinating and very apropos to our mission of revealing the American refugee integration story. There's not time for us to really go into all of the author's stories. However, we heard only brief segments from the interviews recorded exclusively for the exhibit. There was Houston's Ngozi Ukasu, and I'm going to spell her name for listeners because her backstory of the development of the online graphic novel Check, Please is in itself remarkable. That's spelled N-G-O-Z-I-U-K-A-Z-U, and I hope our listeners look her up. And by the way, uh, her parents came to America from Nigeria. And then there was uh, Dina Nayari, herself a refugee from Iran, lived in a refugee camp in Dubai, and eventually resettled to Oklahoma. And Viet Thanh Nguyen, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and his stirring personal account of how he went forward as a writer inspired by the absence of Asian-American and particularly Vietnamese literature in this country. So we're going to close with one news story and a refugee in the arts piece, which I'm very excited about. We just did an episode here on writers, refugee and immigrant writers in America, and this will be another uh, brief one. But it's now that I introduce co-producer Janice Pugh-Wooler. So Janice, what news do you have for us? 
Well, Vince, today's refugee-related topic is about a devastating desert locust upsurge that's occurring right now in Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, as well as 17 other of the poorest countries in the world. The upsurge is the worst situation for Ethiopia and Somalia in 25 years, and for Kenya, it's the worst in over 70 years. So let me explain how this oldest migratory pest and its destruction has affected 20% of the earth, 65 countries, and damaged one-tenth of the world's population's livelihoods. The desert locust can fly 93 miles per day and can consume its weight in food on a daily basis. So here's some perspective on that. A desert locust swarm that could swell to the size of the city of Rome could eat enough food in one day as the entire population of Kenya, which is currently at 50 million people. The current desert locust upsurge started in Ethiopia around June of 2019, and the optimal climate conditions, including the wettest year in over four decades, allowed these pests to grow into the hundreds of millions and could continue to grow 500-fold by this summer according to the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization. These locusts are currently destroying food sources in countries where the populations are already suffering severe food insecurities. If these optimal conditions continue through June of this year, the desert locust upsurge will be designated as a plague, which will be the first plague that has been recorded since 1987. And this situation may substantially increase the number of climate change refugees in the future from the current estimate of 143 million that we discussed in last week's podcast. Well, those certainly are some staggering figures and quite a story that I think we owe it to our listeners to begin a series of climate change impact on refugee populations in the future. I completely agree. I'll keep you updated on this story. So we're going to move to a refugee in the arts story. We're going to try to uh, bring these in wherever we possibly can. It seems most appropriate because we've just done a story on refugee and immigrant writers and the amazing exhibit in Chicago at the American Writers Museum. This one is quite interesting. Tell our listeners about it. It is a very fascinating story. Journalist Beiruz Bouchani is an Iranian Kurd who fled persecution in 2012 with the hopes of gaining asylum in Australia. His claim was rejected by the authorities, and he was sent to Papua New Guinea's Manus Island in 2013, where he has remained for six years. Bouchani spent the next five years typing his book, which is called No Truth But the Mountains, in Farsi on WhatsApp and sending it to a professor for translation. Buchani wanted to shed light on the plight of asylum seekers like himself who were languishing in purgatory off the coast of Australia. His book then went on to win Australia's most valuable literary award in 2019, which is called the Victorian Prize for Literature. The judges described his book as a stunning work of art and critical theory which evades simple description. Buchani currently resides in New Zealand and continues to be a voice for refugees. He's a contributor for The Guardian, and he's also created a documentary called Chakwa, Please Tell Us the Time, about the refugee life on Manus Island. It's an inspiring story, and, and two points on this. Uh, one is, he used WhatsApp. So <laughs> this was what, a page at a time? Pretty much so. He was concerned about having anything in writing 
in fear that the guards would confiscate it. I see. So his own personal security and keeping the book a secret. Precisely. Amazing. And then there's the documentary. And I'm thinking, Janice, that we need to do at least an episode on refugees in media, documentaries, and movies. There are some very interesting stories out there. Specifically on this documentary, Vince, he filmed it completely on his phone and then sent it out. So we're going to close it here and make the commitment to bring you more refugees in the arts stories like we did here today. From the American Writers Museum in Chicago, again, the exhibit is My America, Immigrant and Refugee Writers Today. It runs through May of 2021. Thanks again for listening to Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America. Find out more about us at crossingsrefugees.home.blog, on Twitter at refugee underscore America. Visit the American Writers Museum in Chicago near the Magnificent Mile on 180 North Michigan Avenue or online at AmericanWritersMuseum.org. Our thanks to Carrie Cranston, president of the American Writers Museum. All author recordings from exhibits were made available by kind permission of the American Writers Museum. We're a podcast dedicated to increasing cultural empathy between native-born Americans and newcomers to our nation. Please help us make our country a more welcoming world. Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America, is produced, edited, and hosted by Vincent Hostack. Janice Pugh Waller is our co-producer and researcher. Music is composed, performed, and produced by John Orr Franklin, or spelled O-double-R. Find more of his music at johnorfranklinmusic.com. And thanks again for listening.